written coming out on the shelves under the age of, well, frankly, under the age of 60. I think, what on earth have they to say? Especially if it's a very young person. Now, there might be some exceptions to that rule. You know, think Diary of Anne Frank, fair enough. But 16-year-old Justin Bieber's My Story can't have much to say. Or 23-year-old Paris Hilton's Confessions of an Heiress. Come on. But the memoirs of someone who's lived a full life, a whole lifetime, and has seen it all, well, that's 10,000 times more valuable. And this is something that Proverbs picks up on as well. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. That does not mean that it's good to have gray hair. That's not the point he's getting at. He's saying wisdom comes, as a general rule, wisdom comes with age. Fearing God, the beginning of all wisdom, expresses itself in humbly listening to those who have walked the way of God's wisdom for a lifetime. They have something to say. In Proverbs 30, we meet such a person and he gives us his distilled reflection on life and we find an honest and an insightful reminder of one of our fundamental problems humans have limits humans are finite the younger a person is the easier it is to resist that truth but the older someone gets the harder it is to ignore it Agur describes this problem in verses 1 through to 4, and then he reveals the solution to this problem in verses 5 and 6. And so we're going to split our text up that way. First of all, we're going to look at the problem, the problem, the limits of human wisdom. Agur pinpoints two main limitations of every human being. And the first one is human frailty. Human frailty. He talks about the limits of our strength. Now, we know very little about who this man, Agur, is. Uh, in verse 1, where it says, the oracle, after Jaka, if you've got an ESV in front of you, it could also read, the man of Massa, instead of the oracle. And that was an Arabian tribe, we know that. So this man could be a convert from a pagan tribe uh, to the Israelite faith. Or it could just say the oracle, reminding us that this is God speaking through this man, which is the more important point. And then in the next two lines in verse one, uh, we have a few other issues. It says, in, instead of the man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. That's the ESV translation. It could read, the man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal. And if you have an NIV in front of you, uh, or a King James perhaps, it will say something along those lines. And so I need to pause there and explain, because you might be thinking, how could it be so different? Which is it? What's going on there? But well, what we're dealing with here is some of the most difficult to translate words in the entire Old Testament. There are words here that we find nowhere else in the Old Testament. 
nowhere else out of the Old Testament. And when scholars struggle to determine the meaning of a word, sometimes they'll just say, maybe it's a name. And so they put a name down. Uh, other times, uh, they, there are more options. There are more than one option, sorry, for how a word could be translated. Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, had no vowels. And if you take the vowels even out of English words and show people the consonants and ask them to fill in the vowels, there's sometimes more than one option that they could give you. And so things like that are happening here. Now, we should take comfort in this because if this is the most difficult verse in the Bible, we can see that no major doctrine is in any way affected by it. And so I, I mention that because you've got the footnotes maybe at the bottom of your page or you've got a different translation and maybe you're wondering about that. But we, we need to now leave that because that's definitely not the most important thing about this text. Back to the main issue. The most likely translation is that Agur is weary. He's a weary man. He is worn out, which likely means he's an old man and he's facing the end of his days. And he's learned by experience the truth of Psalm 90. These words written by Moses. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Do you remember um, out the back of the church on that little lawn we have? Do you remember on the 15th of August, 2003, how wonderful and lush the grass was? No, of course you don't. And neither do I. That grass grew. It was cut. It was binned. And it was forgotten. Humans are frail. We were made from dust and we will return to dust and like it or not, within one or two generations, we will be forgotten. The book of Proverbs starts with a kind of youthful optimism. In the first nine chapters, we have this father giving these kind of lectures to his son. Uh, and we might imagine a, a young Israelite man, he's ready to get out of the home and grab life by the horns and, and live life for himself. And so his father is rightly giving him wise advice for how to live in a fallen world, how to prosper in life financially and socially and spiritually, most important, the things that every father would want for his son. But at the end of the book of Proverbs, we have some very different reflections. This is a worn out man looking back at his life. And it's as if he's reminding young Israelites reading through this book that there are some things that the pursuit of long years lived wisely can't give you. Eternal days. One day, like Agur, we'll all be worn out and ready to go. Human frailty will come to us all. And some of you feel that tonight more than others, but we will all feel it one day. And God's word graciously reminds us of this in lots of places, here being one of them. He reminds us that this is not all that there is. Uh, human lifespans are limited. And so no matter how wise we are with our time and with our wealth, 
and those are good things to pursue, we will one day be worn out and so will those resources. And we can't bring them with us. Secondly, we learn that human knowledge is limited. We've considered human frailty. And so next, human ignorance, the limits of our minds. Verses 2 and 3 in chapter 30, maybe, maybe they threw you a little bit when you read them at first. Agar confesses to being a stupid man or too stupid to be a man or a brute of a man. Why? Well, it's because he lacks understanding, he says, verse 2. And in verse 3, he lacks wisdom. And verse 3, he lacks or doesn't have the knowledge of the Holy One. And if you remember anything about the first seven verses of Proverbs, when we looked at that passage, that prologue to Proverbs, you'll maybe remember that these are wisdom words, wisdom terms. These are the very things that a wise man is meant to be pursuing. And indeed, the knowledge of the Holy One, that phrase appears in chapter 9. And it's paralleled with another very important phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Agur seems to be confessing that he's failed in the most fundamental part of the pursuit of wisdom to gain knowledge of his God. So what's going on here? What we seem to have is a moment of very humble self-awareness. Agur's using exaggerated language to say that even though he's walked the way of wisdom in this life, even though he's strived to do that, he knows that there's still so much further to go. And the more he searches out God's wisdom, the more he realizes just how ignorant humans are. The more he does humble himself and, and have a, a fear of the Lord the more he realizes that he doesn't trust him or revere him anywhere near as much as he should, even as an old man. And as he considers the limits of his failing body, as he considers the fallibility of his mind, and then he considers the knowledge of the Holy One who knows all things and is all wise, he's overwhelmed by the gap between God a man between creator and creature. And so what we have here actually is a humble, reverent fear of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, you're not mature if you have a high esteem of yourself. He who boasts in himself is but a babe in Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Young Christians may think much of themselves, Growing Christians think themselves nothing. Mature Christians know that they are less than nothing. The more holy we are, the more we mourn our infirmities, and the humbler is our estimate of ourselves. Now, when Spurgeon said there that we think nothing of ourselves, he doesn't mean that we're worthless. No, because God looks at a child of his and sees someone infinitely valuable and loved. But what he means here is, that in terms of our human knowledge and our ability and what we bring to the table, there's nothing. It's the grace of God. Now, to really drive this point home, Agar, in verse 4, uh, he starts to interrogate his listeners. He asks them these 
this barrage of questions. And they sound a lot like the questions that God asks Job in those famous speeches at the end of that book. And the answer to each of the questions is obvious. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? No man has done that. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? No man. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? No man. Who has established all the ends of the earth? No man. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. There's no man who can do that. No one. Agar is saying that there are limits to the human mind. Humanity has always had a big heart problem. We thought about that this morning. And that problem is pride. You know the story of Babel in the Old Testament. Humans build this tower to reach heaven by their own strength and ingenuity. But it's actually the story of humanity. And there's a reason why Babel becomes Babylon. And in the Bible and in the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes just this idea, this picture and symbol of humanity reaching for the heavens in pride. In our uh, historical theology lectures at college with David Luke, uh, we've been learning about the modern era. And that goes back to the 1700s, surprisingly. That doesn't sound modern to me, but that's when it began. And this period in history is often called the Age of Reason. And people came to believe that they didn't need God to arrive at true knowledge. In fact, God was more of a hindrance, really. Unaided human reason. That's all we need. Give us enough time and knowledge will increase and technology will become more and more sophisticated and modern government and education will will eradicate war and will teach people to, to live in harmony with each other. And all without God, thank you very much. And this way of thinking still persists in, in many, many people, especially in the West. We simply believe that we have no need of God. And as modern Western Christians who enjoy many of the good things of modernity, the, the health care, the economy, the peace, the stability... Well, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we are not in some ways affected by that culture of pride, of not needing God, of being self-sufficient. That's the old man wrestling in our hearts. But Agar asks, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Human knowledge is finite. It's limited as a very low ceiling, especially when we consider the infinite mind of God and his wisdom. We can't go up to him. We need him to come down to us. We need God to come down. And actually, that's the more positive way that you can answer Agur's questions in verse 4. Look at them again. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? The Lord has. He inhabits eternity and yet he's revealed himself to us through his word. God has come down. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? The Lord has. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Who has wrapped up the waters in a, gar in a garment? The Lord has. Who has established the ends of the earth? The Lord has. 
This is his world, and he is king. True wisdom listens to him. What is his name, and what is his son's name? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? What is his name? Well, that part's easy for an Israelite reading this. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the God of Israel. What is his son's name? An Israelite would answer that. Well, Israel. Israel's God's son. He's the one who chose us in the wilderness and made us his son. Uh, He's the one who bought us out of Egypt. And Hosea, the prophet, would go on to say, out of Egypt, I call my son. But the Holy Spirit reveals to us through the apostles that the true son of God, the true Israelite, was Jesus, is Jesus, God's faithful son. Israel was an unfaithful son, but Jesus is the faithful son. And so Agur, obviously speaking better than he knows here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is hinting towards the coming down of God through his son. Which brings us to our second point, the solution to the limits of human wisdom, the revealed wisdom of God. In Christ, he's the God who comes down. Nicodemus, that Pharisee who visited Jesus, I have no doubt that he was a very wise man. He would have been steeped in the law of God. He would have known the Old Testament better than any of us here. He would have beat us on that anniversary quiz if it was an Old Testament round, no problem. He would have known huge swathes of the law off by heart, perhaps even these words that we're looking at tonight. And yet when Jesus instructed him about the need to be born again by the Spirit, he had to rebuke Nicodemus and and he said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus thought, these are the basic building blocks. Come on, Nicodemus. You see, you can have Bible knowledge even coming out of your ears, but not know the Holy One when he's sitting in front of you. And that was the case for Nicodemus, because Jesus then said, no one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It seems very likely that Jesus even had these words of Agur in his mind when he explained this to Nicodemus. Humans have limits. Our our bodies and our minds are limited. But in Jesus, we see someone, the only man, who embraced human frailty, came down and embraced it on our behalf, and yet rose up again, in the words of Hebrews, in the power of an indestructible life. As our children's song goes, he understands the universe, and yet he had to go to school to learn how to write his name. The Lord Jesus is the Son of God who came down and ascended back again. In Jesus, we see the solution to every human need, human frailty, human finitude. It ought to drive us to the God-man, the one who knows our every weakness and yet overcame them all for us. 
Agar's words remind us of serious limits on our lives. His words are, are like a pinprick in the balloon of human pride. Making plans, like we were thinking this morning, uh, of, uh, for the perfect life without any reference to God. Seeking wisdom and knowledge without God. But when we listen to Agar, we're reminded of our utter dependence on God for everything. Our dependence on the God who descends to us in his Son. The one whom, in Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so how can we enjoy these treasures then? How can we enjoy the, the treasure chest of wisdom that the Lord Jesus brought down to earth? Well, Agur teaches us in the first four verses, like we've seen, that there's a limit to human knowledge and there's no limit to God's. And then he teaches us in verse 5 and verse 6 that God shares this wisdom with us through his word. He's given us the words we can stand on. The words we can stand on. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me again. Agur, he picks out three essential qualities of God's word to talk about. He says that God's word is pure. Uh, he says that in it we have protection and in it we see perfection. And what he says about God's word as he knows it is true of all of God's word as we have it revealed to us, Old and New Testament. And the word, that word, which reveals to us this son, the Lord Jesus, that we've been speaking about. So first of all, God's word is pure. God's word is pure. Look at verse five. Every word of God proves true. The language that Agar's using here is like that of a, a metalsmith holding some precious metal to a flame to see whether or not it's pure. Is it mixed or is it true? Is it the real deal? Is it unalloyed? And Agur saying God's word would pass that test, no problem. It's pure, it's true, it's trustworthy. And it's true because it's God's word and God cannot lie. That's what Paul says when he writes to Titus. He speaks of the hope of eternal life that he has as he preaches that hope of eternal life. And he says that this hope is founded on the eternal promises of God, the God who never lies. It's been very popular to attack the historical reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word, especially the Old Testament but time and time again, what critics believed to be, to be fiction, made up place names and characters, have actually been discovered by archaeologists. One example, 1993. Uh, until then, a lot of critical scholars believed that King David was just a fiction, a made up king uh, for, for Israel's backstory. But then a stone slab was discovered, and it was... An Aramean slab, a slab, sorry, it was celebrating the victory of an Aramean king over the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. Clear as day. And this is just one example. Whole cities that were apparently made up have been unearthed. 
Now, these discoveries don't prove God's word to be true. God doesn't need anyone to prove his word to be true. He's the source of all truth. He's the one who makes his word to be true. But these discoveries remind us yet again of the limits of human knowledge. And they point us to our need for a true word and a trustworthy word to stand on. In God's word, there's purity. And then because of that, we find protection. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, Agur says. Again, let's remember who's speaking. This man is, is almost overwhelmed at the limits on his life that he feels he is frail, he is ignorant, he can't find God in his own strength, but in the trustworthy word of God, he finds protection. He finds safety. Even as he looks to what might be beyond the grave, he can face it with confidence. He can stand on God's word. Finally, God's word is perfect. It's perfect. Verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. The reformers uh, in the period of the Reformation, they insisted on a principle that we've come to call sola scriptura, scripture alone, as the only revelation of divine truth, not the teachings of the church, not the teachings of any man. God's word alone is perfect. It's sufficient. It's all you need to know God. You don't need to go looking in other places. And yet Christians are always tempted to look for something else, to hear the still, small voice of God. You have the voice of God here. Uh, to, to burden themselves or other Christians with man-made rules or to spend their lives looking for peace and joy and hope in this life with a Bible sitting on the bookshelf, barely thumbed through. God's word is perfect. It protects us. It's pure. It's true. We can trust it. It's all that we need. And in it, we meet Christ through whom God came down to us. These are words we can stand on, says Agar, because in them, God comes down to us. The question is, are you standing on them? I'm sure Agar had accumulated a lot in his life as he reached the end. But what's his confidence in when he reaches the end? What's the only thing that's left and really matters? What's steady? What's solid? What's reliable as everything else, including his own body, is just wasting away and falling apart? It's the pure, protecting, perfect word of God. Perhaps you're your new year commitment. The Bible reading is already crumbled. And I get it. Especially if you're a, a weary, a sleep-deprived parent, or a sleep-deprived parent, a person looking after your aging parents, or all sorts of reasons why it can be difficult. But we need to remind ourselves again and again that this is the only thing in life that's stable and is pure and is trustworthy. It's full of infinite riches of wisdoms and it's because we meet Christ there. It's not about accumulating knowledge for the sake of it. It's about knowing our Savior 
And so we need to be reminded of that as we turn to it each day and as we come to sit under the preaching of it. These are the things that will shape us and bring us to the brink of the grave with confidence and with peace and security that we're passing in to the next life with no condemnation, no dread, knowing that our God will protect us, even in that final journey. Agar has let out the human problem. We live self-sufficient lives, but really we're finite. There are limits to human wisdom, but then he's given us the solution. We have a God who reveals himself. We can't climb up to heaven, but he has come down to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom this word witnesses to. And today, the old man, Agar, is weary no longer. By faith in the son who came down, Agar has gone to be with him. He humbly acknowledged in this life that his knowledge of the Holy One was limited, but now he's in the presence of the Holy One. His body may have worn out, but now he's with his Lord and he's awaiting a new and perfect body in which he will worship his Lord forever. And even though he's gone from this world, his words still speak to us. And they call us to stand on the only thing that's solid and the only thing that's trustworthy, on the eternal promises of salvation made by a God who cannot lie, given to us in this word. One day we will wear out but we can be sure by faith in Christ that we will go to be with him, the one who came down to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great gospel truths of the Lord Jesus, the one who came down to us, who embraced all that is difficult about this life, who bore it all up in himself and then wrought salvation for us. We thank you that he is reigning in heaven above, that he went back there, that he ascended as king and savior. And we thank you that we can be sure by faith in him that we will follow in his footsteps. We thank you for him and pray in his name. Amen. Well, to prepare us for the Lord's Supper now, we're going to sing, Lord, from the depths I will wait.